Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 10. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke on and off, primarily on for over a year now. And uh, that's what we do. That's our pattern. We go through books of the Bible. We like to study God's Word and see what the author is trying to tell the people in that day, what the Holy Spirit has inspired him to write. And, and, and we learn from that how that applies to us in our life and our world today. We're going to be beginning in verse 17. And we're going to go to verse 24 today. So I'm going to read the text, first of all, and then I'm going to pray one more time, and then we'll dive in. Read with me, beginning in verse 17 of chapter 10. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to his disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that have seen what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Pray with me, would you? Holy Spirit, um, we, we would... Uh, we do. We need your help this morning. We need your help to um, enter into this story at this point of uh, the return of the 72 other disciples that Jesus sent out. And so, Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would teach us and illuminate our minds and our hearts from what we read today and what we hear. I pray that you would use my uh, simple words and understanding of this text that you've given to me. Um, I pray that even at this time you would change that so that this can be communicated honestly and fairly from you. And I pray, Lord, that you would just bless us as we, we, we consider joy, true joy, ultimate joy. And I pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So, my question for you in opening this morning is, what gives you joy? <laughs> not that happy and joy are not the same thing. Sometimes preachers say that happiness is a lower form of... But what when you think about it, actually gives you true joy. So I'm thinking about that this week, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to go through the things in my life or the, the lives of others that I've seen, and I'm asking myself, okay, what, what are examples of joy, right? And I found myself, it was interesting, I found myself thinking, well, this and that, and I'm going, well, I don't know. Is that real joy? You know, I started to end up grading things, right? I was looking at, well, no, that's, that's kind of like giddiness or a little bit of happiness, but it's, it's not ultimate joy. And so I found myself doing this, right? 
And then, then I also found, okay, well, I, you know, I found a couple of examples, and uh, um, I found for myself anyway, it was, it was um, sometimes and usually things that either I was participating in in my own life, I'm just speaking about that, where, where there was some kind of success, right? And, and at the end of that success, it was like, whoa, that was awesome, right? And for me, growing up, a lot of that was either sports or music. And I remember when I was a peewee in hockey, you know, we, we won the league championship, and we were really happy. Like, there was, a, there was a joy from that, you know, high-fiving each other. But I remember one instance, really, that, that really stood out. And it was in high school. Again, I returned to my, my high school years. And I was in grade 12. And it's a long time ago. So some of you probably don't know this story. But the Canadians put together a hockey team. And we went up against the dreaded Russians. You know, and it was supposed to be a cakewalk, right? We're, we're, we're the NHL. We're Canadians, Right. They pretty much mopped us up in the first few games in Canada, and then we went to Russia. It, it turned into a thing where it was like, we're going to lose. This is embarrassing. I mean, the prime minister was like on his knees, right? And I remember in grade 12 being at my buddy Ed Fritz's house, played in a band with Ed. We're all in the room. You know, it's game seven. You know, we had made some great comebacks, and it's like nail-biter time, right? And I'm sitting, I'm sitting on this, like this... Uh, Ottoman or whatever you want to call it. I used to call them hassocks when I was growing up. I'm sitting on it in front of the TV. All my buddies are there, and we're like, and it's the third period, and we're behind by a goal, and then we tie it up, and then Paul Henderson, with just a few minutes to go, scores. I think I'm going to cry even now. I literally got up on that little thing, and I jumped so high, and you know, you can tell, I'm not that tall of a person, but I, I, my head hit the roof of this living room, and it was one of those stippled ceilings. I actually got holes in my head, right? But it didn't matter. We were like high-fiving each other, chest-pumping each other. It, it was exhilarating. I remembered that, as you can tell. It was 1972. It was a while ago. It was exhilarating. Is that joy? Well, yeah. It's a feeling. It's an, it's an exhilaration. It's an experience. And there's joy in that. Truthfully, there is. But those things are temporal, aren't they? You can't repeat those all the time. You'd like to. But you can't. Sometimes your team loses. Go Canucks. So then I started thinking, what about some other examples of this? And then it really started to sink home for me because I remember a form of joy that happened the first time I became a dad. I remember at 11.30 at night in Stony Creek, Ontario, them bringing, while I was still in my, my greens, having been in uh, the delivery with Janice when she gave birth to Andrew, and they put Andrew in my hands. And I remember holding my firstborn son and my second and my third, if they're watching. That was a different kind of joy. There was no yelling and screaming. I was just alone in that room with my son. And that was, that was a deep and abiding joy. I, I, I don't know how to express it to you unless you've been there and experienced that. And it's interesting. I mean, even from that day, I mean, it, it's not just the birth of my own children, but it's the birth of our grandchildren and your children. And it's a joyful thing, is it not? I think it is. So those are at least two ways that we experience joy. And I think the big question for us today is, what is real joy? What does it look like? What robs you and myself, all of us, of our joy? Where do we actually experience it? Well, I believe today's text is going to show us something very deep and profound about the joy of the Lord 
the joy that comes from being a true disciple of Jesus Christ. So your sermon title for today is The Joy of Discipleship. Hope to show you three things today. The disciples' joy, Jesus' joy, and thirdly, the joy of the Lord. Number one, the disciples' joy. Coming from the first verse in our passage today, I put it back on screen. It says, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. I'm trying to, can you just imagine? I mean, how joyful these guys are. So you'll remember that last week we saw Jesus sending out another group. This time it was 72 other disciples, not the 12 apostles. He'd done that already. 72 others that he sends out on a mission trip, a short-term mission trip. He's, he's setting his face at this point in time in the gospel towards Jerusalem. And so he, he knows what's coming He knows the cross is coming. So at this point, after 1.5 years of leading these men and women in discipleship, showing them what good ministry, what good discipleship looks like, he's like, I have to take this discipleship training to the next level. And he needs to send them out. He needs to release them just like he's going to when he ascends. When he ascends and he says to them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, first of all, and then to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He releases them then too, doesn't he? And so Jesus has been modeling, as I said, what, what good, good things look like. He, he, I mean, first, I mean, when we look at what, what he did, his pattern was ridiculously simple, wasn't it? I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I've been in church about 40 years, and, and I, I've been to Discipleship 101 classes. I, I have. I've been you know, told that, taught how to do Discipleship one-to-one, you know, go for a coffee, read the Bible together. You know, talk to each other. I, I've learned that, and I've done that. And actually today, I do that with a number of young men. But Jesus' model for discipleship was this. First, he called people to follow him, right? And you know from the last few weeks that, you know, what he didn't do was immediately say, okay, good, got 12 of you guys or a few ladies too, that's awesome. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a discipleship 101 class. We're going to teach you the Bible, get your theology right, and, and then, you know, then, no. The very first thing that Jesus does after he calls, at least in the scripture from what we read, four guys, Peter and Andrew, James and John, he says, let's go. And he takes them on a road trip. And they begin following him while he's preaching about the kingdom of God. So they're learning, right? You know, disciples are learners, but they're all also coming after. They're following their leader who is taking them on a ministry trip, showing them what good ministry and what good discipleship looks like. Well, they don't know that yet. They're just following Jesus. So they followed Jesus as he went about preaching and teaching the kingdom of God, healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead, etc., etc. What we've been reading about for the last year in the Gospel of Luke. And so he's been modeling for them what good discipleship has, was going to look like, and he's been doing it for a year and a half. Then as we arrive at chapter 9, as we did a few months ago, that's a long chapter, 62 verses, we saw that he, after he appointed the disciples, the apostles, pardon me, the 12, after he appointed them and sent them on their trip, he decides there's a very important point right now. He says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? Remember that? The disciples respond with, well, you know, some people think you're Elijah or John the Baptist, raised from the dead, you know, various other people. And then Jesus personalizes it. He said, yeah, but who do you say that I am? It's a game changer. It's a game changer. 
And, of course, you will remember that Peter, speaking for and on behalf of the Twelve, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter got it right. Finally. But Jesus responds to him by telling him two things. And I'll put, you, put it on screen for you, what Jesus says from Matthew chapter 16. He said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's number one. Number two, he says, And I tell you, you are Peter, small rock, Petra. And on this rock, Petros, large rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, gates of hell, shall not prevail against it. So, first of all, Jesus is saying, Peter, let me make something very clear to you. You you know, you're not the sharpest tool in the shed, okay? It's not your human intellect. It's not your human um, knowledge and experience that revealed that to you, just so you don't get ahead of yourself. No, my Father revealed that to you through the Holy Spirit. That's how you knew that you could say that and that that was true and that you could actually declare that. And then secondly, based on that truth, based on your testimony of faith of who I am, I will build my church, my ecclesia, which literally means a gathering of called out people. That's where we get the word church, is from the Greek word ecclesia. So now in chapter 9, very important point. Now the true disciples know exactly who Jesus is. They've testified to it. He's affirmed it. And so they know exactly who Jesus is. And so it's important at this point that he now move to the second stage of his discipleship training with his disciples. It's time to send them out, those who have been following his lead, learning from Jesus what good ministry and good discipleship looks like so that they may practice what they have learned. Chapter 10 begins, as we saw last week, and we saw what motivated Jesus Uh, We saw it actually from Matthew again. What motivated Jesus to send the 72 at this time was he saw these crowds coming to him. And it says that Jesus had compassion. It literally means his heart was broken because they were lost and they were without a shepherd and they needed him. It's interesting. They needed him, but he, he sends the 72 out. But it's motivated by his compassion. And we learned last week that if we're going to go on mission with Jesus, if we're going to be true disciples in this world today, we, we need to care about those who are lost and far from God. We need to have compassion for them. We have to be motivated by that. So he sends them out with instructions. He says these things. He says, first, pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'll provide you with more disciples, more laborers into his harvest. So first, pray as you're going. It's an ongoing praying as you're going. Then he says, go and make. Go and make. And then finally he says, say, proclaim. Proclaim what? The gospel of the kingdom that you've been hearing from me for the last year and a half. He also instructs them, he says, look, stay in their homes. If they open your doors to, to you and, and the, your peace that you provide to them, the peace that comes from me, they receive it, stay there. Live life on life with them. Eat with them. Drink with them. Proclaim the gospel to them is what he says. Call them to follow you as you are following me. And now we arrive back at our verse for today. We arrive back at the verse. The 72 returned with joy. So first note this. This is important. Last week, right, when he also said, I'm sending you out as lambs 
among wolves, right? You hear that and you're like, this is going to be dangerous. Yes, it's going to be dangerous because of rejection. But also you can see here the 72 all came back. (laughs) So nobody was devoured, right? They all came back. As Jesus said, no one will hurt you. I will be with you even to the end of the age. He keeps his promises. So nobody got devoured. They returned with joy. Actually, the word should be expressed. They came rejoicing. It's a continual, can't stop joy. I really wish, I really wish it was possible for us to transport ourselves back to see this, to experience it. And, and I have to believe that me and my buddies high five and chest pumping. I mean, there's just this continual thing like you come back and it's Jesus. It was awesome. We were gone just for a few weeks. I wish we could have stayed longer. You just there was the, this healing took place, and these people placed their faith and trust in you, and and they know they heard you're coming. They can't wait till you come because they want to fill the room so they can hear you preach and meet you for themselves. The person that we've been revealing to them. I mean, just going on, and on, and on. That's the sense of joy that we have. I mean, the truth is, if you've ever been on a short-term missions trip, right? Uh, uh, at any point in your life, if you've ever um, been to serve at a Bible camp for a week or a parachurch ministry like Young Life or Youth Unlimited or YWAM for that matter, and you go into this mission and you go for a period of time, I mean, you know what happens, right? If you've ever done this, two things basically happen. First, you bond with those people you went with. There was a bond between these 72, I'm sure. Now, they didn't all go to the same city. Some of them, maybe 12 here, 12 there, went to different towns as Jesus was going to be coming to. But there was a bond that took place. You come back after our missions trips. When we do the Mexico missions trips, we've all come back. We're at the airport. We're going, love you guys. This was awesome. It was amazing. There's this bond that happens because you're on mission together with Jesus. It's absolutely remarkable what happens. But also, and this is, I remember the first time I went to a Bible camp with Janice, I came back more exhausted <laughs> off the boat on a Saturday morning than I think I've been in my life. And it was supposed to be kind of a vacay. That's how it was pitched to me, right? You're going to help at a Bible camp. It'll be like a vacation. It's a beautiful island. Yeah, right. I came home exhausted, empty, needed a vacation after serving at this camp, but full of joy, completely full of joy. And happiness. Why? Because we saw God moving. We saw God doing something. We were just serving. We were just telling people about Jesus, helping the kids, encouraging them, praying with them, hearing their stories of broken homes and broken lives. And there was a lot of joy. It's one of the reasons why most pastors, you know, it's part of their job, and, and others, mentors, parents, will suggest to you go on a missions trip. Spend the money. This is better than going to Puerto Varata. It really is. Do it. I remember with our boys, uh, two of our boys uh, so far, there's one more to come. He's still in school, per se. But we recommended YWAM to them. We said, you know, you should go. And then they, they actually had the idea, but we recommended they go, and we helped support them a little bit. And part of our motivation was we want to, you to see, because they're going to go into third world and help the poor, we want to see you to see how good you have things here. <laughs> You're spoiled. <laughs> okay. So they did come back, and one of our sons actually said, I did learn that reasonably well. It stuck with them for a while. Right? But they came back also, yes, having experienced the same thing, having experienced the same thing from that mission. 
So the other thing we see in this verse that I love is, is really amazing. It, it's, it's subtle. You may not see it, but the 72 come back with joy. That's the theme of the passage for sure. But do you notice also? Lord. Not master, not rabbi, not Jesus. Lord. That's how a true disciple who's truly placed their faith and trust in Jesus responds to him. That's how they see him. That's how they see Jesus. And so they, they say, even, look at this, the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, this is often poorly understood. I don't know if you've been around the church long enough to have experienced this, but there, there are people out there who, you know, have actually sent people into third world and various other places, and you know what you need to do? You need to go out and cast out demons, and you need to use in Jesus' name, right? It's like a mantra of some kind, right? And, and let me just suggest this to you. That can be very dangerous, and it could also be very foolish, that's, that's not what actually is being meant here. You'll remember in Acts chapter 19, everybody remember that, right? There was the sons of Sceva. They, they were Jewish exorcists, right? And they had seen the apostle Paul casting out demons, and they, they assumed it was in Jesus' name. And so they, they went out, and they started trying to cast out demons in Jesus' name. And this one demon responds to them and says, Jesus, I know. I'm aware of who Paul is. Who are you? Right? Seven sons. The demons that are in this man come out of the man, and literally, the Scripture teaches us, beat these guys naked. It is funny when you think about it. It's true. It's what the Scripture teaches. You need to be a little bit careful about that. That's not what that means. No, what, what they mean by this is that while they were preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God and teaching the name of Jesus... He is the king. He is the Messiah. He's here. Demons were being cast out. Demons were running for their lives. They're dead, essentially, but they're spirits. They're beings. It's important for us to know, a little aside for you, there's some historical observers who, again, read the Scriptures in a, a negative way, and, and they note that there really wasn't much exercising of demons going on before Jesus or after him. And they're like, you know, maybe this is just metaphorical. Maybe it's just being made up a little bit, you know, just to add to the story, you know, just for our imagination. This is why we have all these kind of weird movies today and thoughts about demons and all the rest of it. You know, it's, a, it's just a fantasy thing, right? No, here's the reality. They do exist. They are real. And they were ever present in the days of Jesus. Do you know Why? Because the Son of God, who they know the name of, was present physically in this world. And their presence was as equally powerful in that day because they knew what this meant. It meant their doom. It meant their doom. So I hope you can see, at least at the beginning here, the joy of the disciples, right? Like they've come back from this missions trip. They now see Jesus. They know Jesus is Lord. And they're expressing their joy for having been part of this, for him having sent them out and, and having seen him move in people through them. That's very exciting. Number two, Jesus' joy. Jesus responds to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I'm giving you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. So 
I don't know if you can imagine this, but at least on one level, Jesus has got to be pretty proud, don't you think? I mean, as your pastor, when you go off on missions trips or you go to things, you come home and, and you give testimony to them. I mean, I'm not taking credit for it, but, but I'm proud of our people for, for giving of themselves in that way and taking the risk and going and serving like that. But can you imagine? Jesus must have been very proud of them. I mean, this is essentially his first full crop of students, right? I mean, the 12 was one thing. This is like the full class of 72 are going out, right? And they come back and they've done what he commanded them to do. And they've been successful. He's got to be proud. They found true joy. He sees this in doing what he had told them to go do. And so I say that because of how Jesus responds. When he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, we have to ask, well, what does that mean? Is, is he talking about in the past when he was in heaven with the Heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit and, and he saw Satan who rebelled against God and with a third of all of the angels was cast out of heaven because they all rebelled with him? Was he talking about that? No. No, he's not. No, he's talking about when they were on their road trip, when they were on their missions trip. And we know that this is metaphorical because, again, when you read the text, the text tells you when it's metaphor and when it's not. Whenever you see like or as, it's a metaphor. It's a picture. And so what Jesus is literally saying, he goes, guys, I know how your road trip went. Every time you stormed the gates of hell, every time the enemy was defeated, every time someone turned from the spirit of darkness to the spirit of light and believed what you told them about me, I saw another flash of lightning. Jesus is very excited. He's very excited because that's what he came to do, was to overcome the darkness, to destroy the works of Satan. And now his lowly disciples are participating in that. Jesus is very, very joyful. He's also very happy that they, for them, got to see it happen. Part of his joy is like, ah, guys, I'm so glad that you obeyed. I'm so glad that you went, because now you know what I'm talking about. You've actually, actually experienced it. He then says, behold, I have given you, have, past tense, authority over all the power of the enemy. He talks about serpents and scorpions. And and these are, of course, not literal animals or insects. Um, But again, as you will find elsewhere in Scripture, they are metaphors for the one he's already named, Satan and his minions. But Jesus goes on, continuing in his rejoicing. It starts to change the direction a little bit. He says to them, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Let me literally translate for you. Do not rejoice in this only. He's not telling them to stop rejoicing in that, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, just stop for a second and think about this. They've called him Lord. Right? They're declaring they believe in him and they're trusting him as Lord. And he's just saying something to them that, would you like to hear these words? By the way, I want to confirm for you, not because of what you've done, but because of who I am and what I will do for you in your place and on the cross, your names are now written in heaven. That's awesome. I mean, it's already been about 
his name, right? In his name. And now he is saying your names. I tell you what, every one of us in this room, we really like our own names. Why? Because we're important to ourselves. That's not a bad thing. It can turn into a bad thing with pride and all the rest of it, but actually caring about your own name and and that you are a unique and distinct person in the eyes of God, that's a good thing. Now, your name, your names. So Jesus is essentially saying this, you think that was good. It was. But what you experienced on the road trip, but I'll tell you what, what is worth really rejoicing in? Your names are written in heaven. You didn't do the writing. Your heavenly Father did. It's, it's been written down. They're there. And once God writes something down, it cannot be changed. It will not be changed. He's always true to his word. And so this really is the key, really, I think, to the true disciple's joy. It's when you know, when you know with certainty that you are his. And he is yours. Not, not just today, but tomorrow when you mess up, and the week after that when you mess up again, and especially when you die. It's secure. Our Lord wants us to experience this kind of joy. And it's not something that can be puffed up or lifted up through a worship service or a, a singing service. Those are great. They're, they're great. The, a great sermon, if you ever hear one. You know, it, it's not through those kind of things. It, it's through you actually, me actually, going with him and with each other into ministry and experiencing discipleship, doing this together. Then and only then can you and I know pure, deep, and abiding joy. Abiding joy, no matter your circumstances. I think the reality of this becomes so clear as we see what Jesus does next. He then says in verse 21, or it says, Luke recording, In that same hour, he, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, this is a prayer, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So in that same hour, so at the same hour that these disciples have come back and are sharing their joy, and he's sharing it with them and experiencing with them, it's, it's almost like Jesus walks off to the side and, and quietly to himself while they're still fist pumping and chest pumping and they're still having a good time and talking about this, Jesus is praying in the Holy Spirit to his Heavenly Father. And do you notice what he's doing? He's not taking credit either. He's giving the credit to his Heavenly Father, to our Heavenly Father, for what has actually taken place. And for what is he thanking God for overall, the Father for overall? Three things in this text. He is thanking him for his plan, right? He's thanking him for his plan and for his grace and for his sovereignty. So what's the plan? It's the gospel. And we see it, right, in those words, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. So Jesus is is thanking him for hiding these things from the wise. 
This is extremely counterintuitive and countercultural in our world today, isn't it? It's extremely counterintuitive. In our culture today, knowledge, intellect, our, our human capacity for reasoning, right, are revered, and so much so that some people actually believe that they can use their human intelligence, their human reasoning to come to faith in Jesus Christ or to even lead others to faith in Jesus Christ. I have to disabuse you of that today because that's not the gospel. I understand. I mean, neither Jesus nor I are saying that we should, you know, we we need to have frontal lobotomies and not use our intellect and our reasoning at some point in our lives. Of course we should. These are good gifts. But what we need to understand is, is that this is a gift of grace. It cannot be by works. You and I participated zero in our own salvation. Amen? We didn't do anything to save ourselves. I'm so grateful for that because that's the good news. Because if it was up to me, oh, dear Lord, as I said to somebody earlier in, in, this week in the, in, the, in the cafe, I said, you're like, where's the bar? Because <laughs> I don't know. Like today, the bar might look really, really high because I've really messed up or it might look really low because I'm doing pretty good. It's, that's bad news. So we don't know where the bar is. And so this is God's plan. I mean, the truth is the scripture teaches us over and over that God opposes the who? the proud, and lifts up the humble. So here he is, Jesus, praying in the Holy Spirit, thanking God, first of all, the Father, first of all, for his plan for the gospel at the same time while these uneducated fishermen and tax collectors and everyone else who's been following Jesus that was sent out on this trip, these are the people he used. And do you think when they went into these small towns, they were using their reasoning and their intellect to argue creation versus evolution with people? I don't think so. They were proclaiming the kingdom of God is near. It's here. His name is Jesus. That's about as smart as we need to be. The last two words in this verse are really key, obviously. Gracious will. And so we know... We know what actually saves us. It's God's grace. Unmerited favor. Jesus took what he didn't deserve so you and I can have what we don't deserve. God's forgiveness. Eternal life. All the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Eternal security. Knowing it with certainty today. Feeling joyful? (laughs) A little bit? Come on, he's really, really good. And secondly, it is by his sovereign will. In other words, Jesus is thanking thanking the Father for doing all the work of saving you and I and anyone who trusts in Jesus alone. Now, still praying in the Spirit, Jesus acknowledges, acknowledges where this is all leading, taking us to point number three, the joy to come. He says this, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Stop there for a second. All things. Does that remind you of anything? what he's going to say later after he's resurrected and before he sends, all authority has been given to me. He just told them to go. This is all a precursor of the Great Commission that we've seen last week and this week. It's beautiful. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. What is Jesus thanking his Heavenly Father for more than anything at this point, really, in this verse? I would suggest to you that he's actually thanking the Heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit for allowing him to be the source of revelation. 
Because here's the thing. Only God can reveal God to us. And the Word became flesh, God with us, and lived among us. It's a beautiful picture. So Jesus tells his disciples, as I've said in Matthew 28, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and do what? Have a Bible study? Yeah, sure, it's part of it. Make disciples who make disciples. Listen, kids, I've said this many, many times. I'm sorry. I know some of you are my age or older. You might think, we're all kids. We're all children, right? This is your identity. This is your career. Your best career is to be on mission with Jesus every day with his church, with his body. This is where you will find true joy. The plan is not yet complete. Jesus knows that. But Jesus' joy is really, really complete. But for the joy set before him, the cross, which he will endure. It's a magnificent prayer, isn't it? Thank you, Father, for what you did. Thank you for using me. That's my prayer. That should be our prayer every time we go on mission and come back, right? He then concludes with these words. Then turning to the disciples, he said to them privately, to the true disciples, the ones who called him Lord. Please understand that. There's a special relationship with those people. Not that he doesn't love the whole world, but he says to them, blessed are your eyes that got to see what you saw. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. I read this, and, and then again, I try to transport myself into that time and that place with those guys and, and, and gals, and I'm thinking to myself, did they, did they get this? Did, did they really understand this, right? Did they have any idea? I mean, they have seen now for a year and a half and heard everything that Jesus has been preaching and doing. They were on mission with Jesus, learning daily what good ministry and good discipleship looked like. And, and they know, they know from this experience that they've had in the last few weeks, this is true joy. This is, the, this is as good as anything has ever been. They know that. But I, I, I think it's true that they're not much different than you and me, right? They, they will have their doubts. Right? Um, they, they will forget from time to time, right? They'd need reminding. Remember after Jesus had ascended and, and the disciples had actually seen him, but after a while they hadn't seen him for a few days, and Peter's like, I think I'm going to go back to my fishing business. <laughs> Peter, you were the first guy that I called. I said I would build my church on your testimony on behalf of all the others. So Jesus appears to him and says, no, 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 no. Do you love me, Peter? Three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep, Peter. I want you to be a pastor, you're not a fisherman. I told you I would make you into a fisher of men, of disciples. Get back at it. Feed my sheep. So let me leave you this morning with a question and a thought or two. Question. Where do you find your joy? I'm the same. Okay. There are so many places, right? I mean ultimate joy every day, regardless of your circumstances. You know, listen... Many of us are chasing a career, a path where, 
you know, I'm going to be able to stand out or make enough money, you know, or whether it's a home and possessions and materials, whether it's even my spouse or my kids. And, you know, we put our hope in all these things. Many of them, listen, they're not bad. But as the old saying goes, any single thing that is turned into an ultimate thing can become an idol, right? And with God, it's like, no, 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 no other idols before me. Why? Because he's so proud? No, because he wants you to flourish. And he's the best God. He's the only God. We need to trust in him completely. And so, you know, I've been listening the past few weeks, and today I've been thinking about it. To me, again, the ultimate joy is found really in discipleship. It's the ultimate joy. It's found in that in following Jesus and leading others to follow him as you follow him, calling others to do the same, going and while going, making disciples and make disciples. It can be challenging (laughs) from time to time. We're all sheeple, you know that, right? So, you know, as I look back on what we talked about earlier this morning, there's no doubt that I know exactly what the greatest joy is in my life. Two things. Number one, Jesus. Jesus alone. I love my wife. I love all of you that I know well. I want to love all of you because I want to know you better. But I, that's my greatest joy. He's the greatest joy. I'm not just saying that because you're a pastor. It's just, I mean, I had to pray about it. Am I being honest about that? Yes, without doubt. But secondly is this, new life. Nothing has given me greater joy than being given the gift by God of a child. Again, I love my wife. It was a great wedding day, right? Our 40th anniversary in December was awesome. I love her dearly, but what a joy. New life is, right? When given to you by God. And it expresses exactly... And listen, I'll tell you what. I, I think new life is what gives Jesus the greatest joy. And why do I say that? Because he created us. <laughs> he had the idea in the first place. Let us make man in our image. Let us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He loves new life. He's all about that. In fact, I would suggest to you that the main reason why the disciples, the 72 and Jesus, were so excited on that day wasn't because Satan was being defeated, as good as that was. It was because new life was being birthed. On that trip. And so, friends, as as we go today, my prayer is going to be this for you, for all of us. My prayer is going to be, and I would ask you all to pray with me on this, that we would all experience true joy in discipleship. Because at the end of the day, here's the thing. If you and I are faithful to that, we're going to see new life. Amen? Do any of you get excited when you get to come and hear someone's personal testimony uh, of faith in Jesus Christ and then see them baptized? I still have to choke it back when it happens. And even when I'm the one getting to baptize them, it's when it's actually happening. That That is unbelievable feeling. And to participate in it, whether you were planting seeds, whether you were watering, whether you're actually the one who prayed with someone or were there when they expressed their testimony, 
That's the truest joy. And I'll tell you why. Because it's God's truest joy. Amen? Pray with me, would you?